It's interesting, every Sunday uh, prior to me walking up here and standing behind the pulpit, I say the same prayer. Well, I say it after the pastoral prayer ends. My quick prayer, like Nehemiah's uh, quick prayer, is, um, is, Lord, thank you for the Holy Spirit. Because I know that unless the Holy Spirit is present and at work, then nothing that I do up here will amount to anything. And it's interesting because this morning, our text focuses on the Holy Spirit. We are working our way through the Gospel of John. We are in what is known kind of popularly among scholars. We are in the section now of the Gospel of John that is called uh, the Book of the Passion or the Book of Glory, some scholars would prefer to call it that. Uh, That is basically the second part of John. John can be divided into two books. The first book being popularly known as the Book of Signs because it's during that section, John 1 through 11, that Jesus performs these signs that attest, uh, the author, John says, to his being, God made flesh. But we are in this section now in John chapter 14 where Jesus and his apostles, who uh, were 12 when the dinner began, uh, but now have been reduced to 11, because Judas Iscariot, one of his closest companions, has left. He's gone out into the dark in order that he might betray Jesus. And so Jesus is with his 11 left, and what he is saying to them is, in fact, quite dark, because he has shared with them that one of them is going to betray him. He's shared with them that, in fact, the leader of the group, Peter, before the rooster crows, and in just a short time, will deny that he even knows his master three times. And yet, when he sees that they are troubled, he then speaks words of comfort. Now, amazingly, and I've shared this before, Jesus is the one who is about to be betrayed and crucified. And yet, here is a man who is going to his death comforting his followers who are disturbed by what's going to happen to him. So what we see here in this upper room discourse, this last supper here in John chapter 14, are Jesus' final words to his apostles before he goes to his crucifixion. And Jesus has really been giving them and us uh, a, a lesson in deep Trinitarian theology. Jesus has been saying to them things like, I and the Father are one. He's been saying things to them like, if you have seen me, you've seen the Father. He's been saying things to them like, I only do what the Father does, and I only say what the Father says. He's been explaining to them in these various ways just how intertwined he and the Father are in this mission. Well, that's been what he's been saying. But he is now moving, beginning with our text today, into a detailed discussion, maybe the most detailed in the entire Bible, 
of the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. Our text today, what I'm going to be focusing on, is really only two verses. John chapter 14, verses 16 and 17. I'm going to begin, uh, because I'm going to discuss this a little bit, with the verse that I ended with last week. Now, if you have your Bibles with you, uh, as always, I encourage you to to open them up and and keep them open because we're going to be looking at each verse in a pretty detailed way. If you don't have a Bible with you but would like to use one to follow along in the sermon, you should find a Bible in the chair in front of you underneath, and if you use that Bible, you will find our text on page 901. So John chapter 14, beginning at verse 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. So our first verse that we're going to be looking at is verse 16. But I want to go back for a moment to verse 15. Because last week I focused a lot of attention on that verse. And what I found this past week is that I received more positive feedback on that verse and how I explained that verse than any sermon I've ever preached since I've been here. And I think it's because a lot of us struggle with the same thing. A lot of us as Christians. What you see in verse 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Jesus, as I said last week, is bringing together two logically connected ideas. Love for him and obedience to him. And I think, as I mentioned last week, that that Christians, especially those that are very sensitive to their own sin, and probably a lot of Christians are, I think, almost hard not to be sensitive to your own sin if you're a Christian. Uh, Paul said at the end of his life, I am the chief of sinners. That was the Apostle Paul. I think if we're sensitive to our own sin, then we can have a tendency to read this verse, verse 15, as a warning rather than as a promise, as I said. But you see, Jesus throughout this whole section is giving a whole set of promises. So I think that we can read verse 15 as another promise, that that Jesus is saying, those who love me will certainly obey me. But the reason I I want to focus on this, and and for some of you, this first part of the sermon might be the most helpful thing for you in this sermon, is that when we move to verse 16, we see that there is an and there, an and connected to it. You see that? And if we start down that warning route, then we can end up seeing verse 16 as another part of this set of conditions, if you will. Jesus could be saying, 
If you say you love me, then you'll prove your words to me by how you obey me. I'll be standing back and watching, and if you obey me well enough, then I'll grant you the Holy Spirit. See how you could read that with that and there. You could, in other words, by ignoring the rest of the New Testament, pull verses 6, 15, and 16 out and read them as a string of conditions by which you actually earn Jesus' trust and by which you earn the gift of the Holy Spirit. Do you see how that could happen? You see, unfortunately, if you read it that way, then it turns everything else that the New Testament teaches on its head. You're just pulling it out of context. You're not reading it in the context of the entire New Testament. In fact, you're not even reading it in the context of John. Because all you need to do is go back to John chapter 3 and see what Jesus says to Nicodemus about the Holy Spirit. Nowhere in what he says to Nicodemus does he talk about the Holy Spirit as being something you, you earn, as being a gift that is given to you if you obey him well enough. In fact, Jesus, when he's talking to Nicodemus, he says, unless you're born again of the Spirit, unless that happens to you, you don't even have the capability of seeing, much less entering the kingdom of God. It's impossible without the work of the Spirit. And the Spirit goes where He wills. He doesn't go to whoever obeys me first. It's impossible to obey me without the Spirit, is what Jesus is saying. Now, I quoted last week, and I'm going to quote this again, New Testament scholar D.A. Carson, who is a, an expert on the Gospel of John. He, he says this, the love of the disciples for Jesus should not be seen as the price paid for this gift any more than it is the price paid for their obedience. He says Jesus is describing a set of essential relations, not a set of titillating conditions. His true followers will love him. They will obey him. And he, on his part, will secure for them, from the Father who denies nothing to the Son, to the son another counselor. So that's D.A. Carson. But just to add to that, Another New Testament scholar, a uh, scholar on John, Gerald Borchert, he says this, Jesus knew very well that the requirement of love and keeping his commands would necessitate a resource of divine proportions. And accordingly, he prayed that his followers would have another resource. It is, however, crucial to recognize that the gift of the paraclete, I'll get into that in a minute, is not to be understood as some kind of quid pro quo between Jesus and his followers, as though the market exchange for the Holy Spirit was our obedience. We do not earn the Holy Spirit any more than we can earn our salvation. But in the process of responding to the Son of God, we discover that Jesus has provided a divine, ag a divine agent for us to us for living in this world. So what we have to understand if we're going to think about what you and I are, Christian, is that a Christian is the whole package at once. A Christian, a true Christian, will love Jesus, a true Christian will obey Jesus, and a true Christian will have the Holy Spirit. And that's because a true Christian was not made a Christian by his own efforts. A true Christian 
has been made a new creation by the work of the Holy Spirit through the sovereign power and grace of God. And therefore, a true Christian, by that sovereign power and grace, loves and obeys Jesus. I think sometimes we have fallen into confusion about this whole package idea because throughout church history or maybe even in your own lives, you've heard people talk about, well, I'm a carnal Christian. You see, I, I love Jesus and, and he's my savior, but the reason that I bear no fruit is because I'm carnal. And so I just never obey. Or you might have, hear somebody say, well, I have Jesus as savior, but I don't yet have him as my Lord. That's why you don't see any obedience from me. The fact of the matter is that that statement biblically just doesn't even make sense anyway, because the fact is Jesus, if you wanted to even use that phrase, the better way to say it is, is, I have Jesus as my Lord, but not yet as my Savior. The fact of the matter is Jesus is Lord of everyone. Whether you acknowledge it or not, he is your Lord. The question is, is he your Savior? But you see, I think what we need to understand is that Christianity is not like the Boy Scouts where you earn different badges the further you go. You know, you don't don't look at at another Christian and say, well, the good news is I've completed the love badge. I'm hoping next week to complete the obedience badge, and if I'm lucky, fingers crossed, by this time next year, I'll have the Holy Spirit badge. I think some Christians, I think you and I, Christians, sometimes get tripped up, though, by our lack of obedience. I think that's the problem. Because if we're sensitive to our sin, we say to ourselves, but if I have the Holy Spirit, why don't I obey perfectly? Or maybe you don't even ask for perfection. Maybe you just say, well, if I have the Holy Spirit, why aren't I obeying better than I am? Well, two things to say about that. First of all, you are obeying better. The fact of the matter is, you would not obey him at all if it were not for the Holy Spirit. So you are obeying him better than if you didn't have the Holy Spirit. That's just a fact. The Holy Spirit produces fruits of obedience. But second of all, Scripture itself, God's Word itself, tells us that obedience will be hard. When we read these passages, why do we ignore them? Scripture says, Paul, speaking in Romans 7, describes his inner condition. He says, I don't understand my own actions, for I don't do what I want. I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it's good. So now it's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. See, I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh, my sinful nature. I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good that I want, the evil I don't want to do, that's what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, it's no longer I who do it, but the sin that dwells within me. You hear Paul there describing what's going on in his daily existence. Now, some people want to argue that that's Paul as a Pharisee, that Paul is describing what he was like before coming to Christ. I don't agree with that 
Because when Paul describes what it was like as a Pharisee, he said, as a Pharisee, I thought I kept the law perfectly. I thought I was blameless. I did everything right. So why would Paul later tell us that and then here say, no, as a, as a Pharisee, I was all tied up in knots because I didn't obey God's law. But even if for argument's sake you want to say that that's Paul as a Pharisee, which I don't agree, Paul writing a letter to the church in Galatia, which now we know he's writing to Christians, says in Galatians 5.16 the same exact thing. I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. These are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. You see, simply put, when the Holy Spirit enters someone, a war begins that wasn't there before. A war begins inside the Christian, a war between the Holy Spirit and the Christian sin that will not end until glory. See, the bottom line, and and this is, people that were contacting me were saying, thank you for giving me assurance. Thank you for reminding me. I just want to end with this and then we'll move on. The bottom line is this. The only people that are ever going to be upset that they don't love and obey Jesus perfectly are people that have the Holy Spirit. Think about it, just logically. What non-Christian have you ever met in your life, ever, who looked you in the eye and said, you know the thing that worries me the most? That I don't love and obey Jesus the way I want to. They don't care. If you struggle with that, it means the Spirit is at work in you. So don't read verse 16 when he says, and I will give you another helper. I will ask the Father and he will give you another. As following a set of a condition of obedience. See it as part of a set of necessary conditions that must be a part of the Christian's life if he is or she going to be a Christian. Notice, though, first of all, that Jesus says, I will ask the Father. It's interesting that he says that because what has he just instructed the disciples to do? You just go back a couple of verses, he's instructed them to ask. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. So notice here that Jesus is demonstrating for them exactly what he just told them to do. I want you to go and ask the Father for things. And now he says, I am going to ask the Father. And notice here the confidence that Jesus says that his request will be answered. He doesn't say, I'm going to ask the Father, and he might give you another helper. He doesn't say, and he should, by all calculations, give you the Spirit. He says, I will ask him, and he will give you another helper. The reason he can say that is because Jesus' will is perfectly in line with the Father's will. Whatever Jesus asks of the Father, that he will do. There's no question about what the response to the Father will be. It's interesting, too, that the word that Jesus uses for ask when he's telling 
the disciples to ask something of the Father. That word that he uses twice there, it, it has within it a plea for urgency, an urgent plea or a fervent plea. When he's saying to them, ask the Father, ask fervently for the Father. It's interesting, he doesn't use that same word for him. When he says, I will go and ask the Father for another helper, he just uses the word, I will ask him. I will make a request of him. It's very interesting that the one time, far as I know, the one time that Scripture explicitly says that Jesus was praying fervently, that Jesus was praying urgently, that Jesus was praying in agony for something, was the one time the Father said no. It was this prayer that will about to happen in the Garden of Gethsemane. Even then, when Jesus was praying fervently, in agony, Lord, please, if there's any way, take this cup from me, what did he follow it up with? Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. You see, over the years, I've had many Christians say something to me like this. Why should I close every prayer with, if you will? You see, they say to me, it sounds like kind of a cop-out. It sounds like I'm not really believing in what I've just fervently asked God for. If I ask God for all these things and then I say, well, if you will, Father, then it sounds like I'm just kind of erasing everything I just said. Well, maybe, but saying to God, nevertheless, your will doesn't necessitate that. It certainly didn't mean that for Jesus. There is no way that you could say that Jesus' prayer in the garden was not fervent. If there was any perfectly fervent prayer that was ever prayed, it was that prayer in the garden. Jesus meant what he said. And yet he followed it up with, nevertheless, not my will, but yours. You see, Jesus, when he teaches his disciples to pray, what does he say? The first thing he tells them to pray, as you think of the, the sort of context in which you offer up any prayer, is, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Before you even get to, please give me your daily bread, the first thing you say is, Father, I know your will is going to be done. But you see, if it's good enough for Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane to say, Father, here's what I want three times. Father, please don't make me go through this. It's good enough for him to end that prayer with, nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. Who are we to say that it's some kind of cop-out to say, Father, your will anyway? Lord, please heal my mom of cancer. Nevertheless, your will be done. That is a, an excellent prayer to pray. It models the prayer that Jesus prayed. Notice what Jesus says. He asks the Father to give them another helper. Another, our text says, helper. Now, the Greek word here is paraclete. 
What's difficult about this word is that it's hard to nail down what exactly it means. And that's why some of you may be using a different English translation here, that your English translation might say something else than helper. Some, uh, the, the King James Version says comforter. The uh, New Revised Standard Version, it says advocate. The NIV, some of you might be using that, says counselor. And even the message, which is a highly paraphrased uh, version of the New Testament done by Eugene Peterson, that says friend in it. So you see, in, it's difficult to nail down. In, in secular Greek writings, the, the paraclete, this word paraclete is only used a few times in the, in the New Testament. We don't have a lot of examples. When you look outside of the New Testament in other secular Greek writings, it tends to most often mean a legal advisor or some advocate in the courtroom. Hence why the New Revised Standard goes with advocate. I think, though, that in my opinion, none of those actually completely encapsulates what Jesus is talking about. And I think maybe it's best, and the reason I even mention that it's, it's called a paraclete, that's the word, is because the word, if you just look at the, the two parts that make up that word, it literally means one who is called alongside. One who is called alongside. You see, the word helper it's okay, but my dad did construction, and he worked on elevators, and at, growing up, he, he would tell me, look, you have a supervisor and you have a helper, and the helper is the guy that does whatever the supervisor tells him to do. And so, if you just read the Holy Spirit is a helper, then maybe you're the one in charge, and he just does what you tell him to do. Uh, there are all kinds of ways that, that using that one of these phrases might be misunderstood. But you see, if we think of the Holy Spirit not as any one of those things, but as one who is called alongside of us, the Holy Spirit is our helper when we need help. He is our comforter when we need comfort. He is our counselor when we need counsel. He is our defender when we need a defender. He is our friend when we need someone to befriend us, and He is our teacher when we need someone to teach us. The, the Holy Spirit fulfills all of those roles for us as Lord. He's doing all of those things all throughout our life. Now, I can almost hear the these apostles, and I would probably be thinking this at least, if not saying it, all right, fine. Jesus, you're going to send someone else. I get it. But you see, Jesus, you're leaving. I mean, what good does it do us? I realize you're going to send someone else, but I don't want someone else. I want you. I mean, wouldn't you be saying that? I don't want anyone but Jesus. After all, Jesus has for three years been the perfect all of those things to me. Why would I want someone else? I mean, as I thought about it this week, it, it's like, you know, who else would be equal to him? Who's he going to send if he leaves? It's like, you know, you organize a turkey bowl on Thanksgiving morning, and your neighbor happens to be Tom Brady. 
and you get him to play on your turkey bowl team. And you all show up, and the other team shows up, and they see who you have as your quarterback, and they basically know they're going to lose. And then suddenly, before the game starts, Tom Brady looks at you and says, you know what, I just realized I have to help my wife base the turkey. But don't worry, I'll send you another quarterback. Like, well, I, I realized that, but I wanted you. It's the whole reason I put this thing together, because I knew with you on the team, we're going to win. And then he leaves and he sends Bob, the, the, the 45-year-old you know, hedge fund manager that lives next door to him that sat the bench in high school. What good does that do? I might as well QB that, right? You know, that's what you're thinking. You see, the key word here is the word another. Another. I will send you another helper. See, in Greek, there are two words that mean another, that you can translate another. One of them means another of a different kind, and one of the words means another of the same kind. And you can find this exact usage of both of these words in Galatians 1, 6, and 7. If you want to turn to that, you can. You don't have to, but if you want to look at it. Galatians 1, 6 to 7, it says, Paul is writing to them, to a church that is abandoning the gospel and turning to a gospel of grace plus works for salvation. And he says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one. So that, that's how our, our translation here, the ESV, the one we have here, that's how it translates it. The King James Version, though, translates it this way. I marvel that ye are so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ unto another gospel, which is not another. See how the King James is translating both of those words as another. But you see, when you actually look at each word in the Greek, what you realize is that what Paul is saying is, You've turned to another gospel, parenthesis, of a different kind. And precisely because it's a gospel of grace plus works, it is not another gospel of the same kind that I've been teaching you. Do you see what he's saying there? It's, it's no gospel at all. In fact, the uh, the, the NIV, I think, has it translated really well. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you by the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. That's the way they have, have uh, translated it. See, both Greek words mean another. But you see, what you find here is that when Jesus says, I will send you another paraclete, one who comes alongside, he's using the word that means another of the exact same kind. So, what he's saying is that when I leave you, the next paraclete that I send you will be just as much God as I have been. It's as though Tom Brady says, I remember I have to base the turkey, but I'll send you another quarterback and in walks, name whatever Pro Bowl quarterback you want to pick. He's not Tom Brady, but he's just as good. He's a different person. 
but he's just as good. How, how, how upset would you be if Patrick, Patrick Mahomes walked on the field? You said, wow, <laughs> great. We're still going to blow him out. Jesus then reveals who this next paraclete will be in verse 17. He says, look, the paraclete is even the spirit of truth. Jesus calls him the spirit of truth, which he goes on to call him in in John 15 and in John 16. He keeps using this phrase, the spirit of truth. And we see all throughout the gospel of John just how much the truth pervades the Trinity. We see that the Father is truth. Jesus will pray. Later on, we'll see in the high priestly prayer in John 17, 17. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Jesus has just said to them prior to talking about the Holy Spirit, what did he say about himself? I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. You see, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are each of them as distinct persons, fully the truth. And that's something that we can't lose sight of as Christians. As Christians, we have to hold on tightly to the idea that whatever is said in God's Word, when understood correctly, is the truth. Because our society, (coughs) I've noticed over the past couple of years, I've noticed this sort of popular phrase, your truth or my truth. People say, speak your truth or I'm speaking my truth. Well, the Christian comes along and says, look, if, if I'm going to use in any way the phrase my truth, well, I'm going to point you to this, which what I'm saying is the truth. If you deviate from this, I don't care what your truth is, you're wrong. Because this is the truth for everyone, at all times. It's always the truth. And why? Because it's God's Word. And as Jesus says here, I and the Father and the Spirit are the truth. He doesn't mince words. If we deviate from what He says and what the Holy Spirit says and what the Father says, you're no longer in truth. You're now in falsehood. It's not that we're being cocky. It's just that it makes no sense to say that if Jesus is truth incarnate, then something that is the exact opposite of what Jesus said is also true. Those things make no logical sense. We, we see this discussion, we'll see it in John 18. Pilate looks at Jesus and says, you are a king? Jesus says to him, look, I am a king, and for this purpose I was born to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And Pilate gives the world's answer. Pilate looks at Jesus and says, what is truth? You see how different that is. Well, what Jesus then does is he makes a comparison between the apostles and the world. We have to understand that in the Gospel of John, the world does not usually mean the earth, the the planet that we call earth. In the Gospel of John, the world almost always means that which is in rebellion against God. And so Jesus here says, the world cannot receive this spirit of truth, 
because it neither sees him nor knows him. But what does he say about the apostles? The apostles do know him because he dwells with them and he will be in them. Now, what does Jesus mean by this? Well, let's look at the apostles first. Jesus says, you know him already. You know him, the spirit of truth, because he's been with you already. And later, at a later date, he will be in you. Now, what is he talking about here? Some take this, when they read this, and I've taken it this way too, to mean that what Jesus is focused on here is he's comparing and contrasting the work of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament to the work of the Holy Spirit after Pentecost. If you look back, just read through the Old Testament, you'll see that lots of people are empowered by the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit was very much involved in God's work in the Old Testament. The Holy Spirit came upon Joshua and Samson and Joseph and Gideon and Saul and David, and you can just go down the list. In the Old Testament, we see the Holy Spirit come upon these people, empowering them for a time to do what God wants, and then sometimes leaving them. We see the Holy Spirit leave Saul. We see the Holy Spirit leave Samson. David, you remember in Psalm 51, after he sinned greatly with Bathsheba, when he writes that confession of sin in Psalm 51, one of the things he pleads with God is, please do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Because he realizes that God could, in fact, take him. He was a gift that could be given and taken. But you see, it is true, and I think that is what Jesus is saying when he says, he will be in you. Jesus is pointing to a, a huge shift in the epochs of salvation. Jesus is pointing forward to the day of Pentecost and saying, the Holy Spirit is about to come upon you and he will be in you unlike anyone else who has lived prior to my coming. He will be in you and he will not come upon you and then leave you at different times, but he will be in you because he will be in you forever. That's what he says. He'll be in you to stay forever. He's not going to leave you again. But... What does Jesus mean by he already dwells with you? You see, is Jesus there saying the Holy Spirit has been on you like he was on David or like he was on Saul? I, I think that could be what he's saying. I'm not saying I'm for sure right about this, but I don't think that's what he's saying. I think what he's saying here is that you know the Holy Spirit already because he has been with you in me. Jesus has been with them for three years. Jesus was the first paraclete. When he says, I am going to send you another of the same kind, he's pointing to himself as the originator of this. What do we see? We see in the Old Testament that there was someone prophesied who was going to be sent from the Father, and he was going to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Isaiah chapter 11. There's going to come forth from Jesse, the line of Jesse, a stump, a shoot from the stump of Jesse. And the Spirit of the Lord is going to rest upon him. Later on, in Isaiah chapter 61, this is now this servant speaking. 
And he says, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, the opening of prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And if you remember, Jesus read that exact scroll, that section there in the synagogue, rolled up the scroll and said, today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus is saying, I am the one who was sent by the Father, who was filled with the Spirit to do the things that I'm doing. And when that time came and the angel went to Mary, the angel Gabriel, what did he say? Mary, you are going to conceive a son, but not like everyone else has conceived. The Holy Spirit will come upon you. And when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, the child who will be conceived in you solely by the power of the Spirit will be called holy, the Son of God. Jesus was born solely of the Spirit. And then later in Matthew chapter 3, when Jesus is baptized, when he comes up out of the water, the Spirit of God descended like a dove and came to rest on him, empowering him for his ministry. And in all of the New Testament, the only other person who is ever labeled the paraclete is Jesus. In 1 John chapter 2, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate or a paraclete with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. So just as Jesus said, when you look at me, you see the Father. Now he's saying, when you look at me, you see the Spirit. Everything that I have done From the first day that you walked with me until now, you have seen me working in the power of the Holy Spirit. But then Jesus describes the world. He says the world cannot receive the Spirit because the world does not see him or know him. And if Jesus is speaking of himself here, as I've argued he is, then it fits exactly with what John says at the very beginning of his gospel. Because he says there that the true light, the light that created the world, which gives light to everyone, was coming in the world. And he was in the world, and though the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and even his own people did not receive him. In fact, the religious leaders, when they saw what Jesus was doing by the power of the Spirit, who did they attribute it to? Not the Holy Spirit. They attributed his power to Satan. The exact opposite. The rebellious world, the world that is against Jesus, the world that we live in now, the world called the present evil age, looks at Jesus, looks at everything that he's done, And even though what he's done, even though everything he's done is done by the power of the Holy Spirit, the world looks at him and believes he's a fraud. But in fact, the brilliance of God in his sovereignty is that God used the world's rejection to bring about his plan of salvation. If the whole world embraced Jesus as a good man and he was never sent to the cross, we would still be in our sins. We would not be saved. 
It was the world's rejection that sent him to the cross, and that became the very vehicle that led to the pouring out of the Holy Spirit on you and me this morning, Christian. I want to close by just giving you a list. John Owen, the Puritan, he's probably written more than anyone that that I've read on the Holy Spirit. If you just read some of his books on the Spirit, he just gives a list of all of the things that the Holy Spirit does for us. List, thing after thing after thing, just a sample of what the Holy Spirit does. The Holy Spirit carried men along to write Scripture for us. The Holy Spirit brings our dead hearts to life so that we can see and enter the kingdom of God. The Holy Spirit enables us to say in faith, Jesus is Lord. No one can say that without the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit brings us out of the flesh and into the Spirit. The Spirit assures us that we are Christ's heirs. The Spirit intercedes for us when we're praying according to the will of the Father. The Spirit gives us gifts that we can use to share with one another. The Spirit then bears fruit in our lives that we otherwise would not have. And the Spirit battles the remnants of sinful flesh in us. Paul in Galatians 4 says, In the same way, when we were children, we were enslaved the elementary principles of this world, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts crying, Abba, Father, so Christian, you are no longer a slave but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. That's what you are sitting here this morning. Despite all the struggle that you have with sin, despite all the ways that you fail God, do you hear what Paul is saying? He is saying, Christian, that you have been redeemed by God, that you have been adopted by God, that you have been given the Holy Spirit by God, that you are now a son or daughter of God, and that you are now an heir of Christ through the Spirit. Brothers and sisters, I don't know what kind of gifts you like to receive. My birthday is coming up. (laughs) My family knows the kind of gifts I like. But understand this. The Holy Spirit is the ultimate gift that could be given. You see, if you never get anything else in this life, or even if you lose everything else in this life, If you gain him, you have everything. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this passage. But Father, thank you even more for the Holy Spirit. Thank you for your Son who went to you and asked that the Spirit be sent. And Father, we thank you now that because of him, We are guaranteed to be with you forever. May we never forget it. In Jesus' name.